Our reading this morning is from Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Now, I'm. how many of you, by a raise of hands, after he read that, or while he was reading that, was thinking of a little cute song? All right? How many of you have no idea what I'm talking about? All right, see, now, here's the deal. When, when I grew up in church, and so what happened often is either what we called the Sunday school opening or junior church, when you were dismissed from, from big, big church to go to junior church, you would often be, be uh, enlightened with wonderful songs like Head and Shoulders, Knees and Toes, All for Jesus, right? Do you remember that one? Or Climb, Climb Up, Sunshine Mountain. Anybody know that one? Or is that just me? Uh, all right, so, but there was this one great song, and maybe if you know it, you can sing along with me. It goes like this. Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man. Hey, hey, wait, you, you know this. <laughs> See, now it's, that's awesome. See, but here's the deal. When I was a kid, I thought that Zacchaeus was a leprechaun <laughs> because he was a wee little man, right? Um, and then and actually, and, and later on, you're going to hear Tom talk, and he talks about a pot of gold. I don't know if you, you heard this, but you said something about a pot of gold. I was like, I knew it. <laughs> he was. All right. So, so, so as we sing this. All right, uh, here, here we go. There's more to it. So Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree. And he said, Zacchaeus? You come down, for I'm going to your house today. Yes, I'm going to your house today. All right. Now, see, here's the deal. You're going to remember this story because you sang it. All right, Tom. So much for the sermon. We don't need one, right? You guys want to go home early, but there's just a little bit more in this text than that. But uh, again, good morning. And uh, one of the things I want to say is that uh, Christ community, we've been around a while, but I'm glad we still can have a lot of fun. So thank you for your laughter. Many of you guys knew that song. First service, I don't think anybody knew the song. So maybe you're more churchy. I don't know. 
We are delighted you're here this morning. Thanks again for coming out in a kind of cold day. And if you're a northerner, it's nothing. If you're a southerner, it's scary. So, But hardly a day goes by when each one of us does not have the opportunity to be generous. If you think about it, maybe it's on your way to work. You stop at an intersection or a way to school, uh, and there's a stranger, often disheveled, who seeks a donation from your car window. Sometimes it's friends, family members, colleagues who pull you aside and say, hey, can you give me a little extra cash to get me through the month? Online opportunities greet us often, don't they? Like CrowdRise and Kiva clamor for our online credit cards and year-end appeals. Have we just gone through an amazing year-end? It used to be where year-end appeals came to my snail box, now they just bombard my inbox. All of us, I trust, have had the experience of a fundraising banquet that ends with a financial appeal. The question is not whether we have opportunities to be generous. The question is really, how do we respond to those opportunities? If you're like me, God forbid, I know that I should be generous. I mean, I'm not only a Christian, I'm a pastor for goodness sakes. But all too often, transparently, my heart of hearts, eh, I wrestle with being generous. Instead of being inclined to add another zero to my charitable contribution, transparently, at times, I'd rather subtract a zero. And transparently, I know none of you are like this, my least favorite moment of a fundraising banquet for a good cause is not the amazing stories and but it's that moment. You know that moment? You're all circling the table, you had a good meal, and the table host hands you the pledge card. Am I the only one who experiences giver's remorse? Why is it, I wonder, we often view generosity as something we should do rather than something we get to do. Why does it often feel like generosity is a burden more than a blessing? Why is that? This morning we're going to continue the series, as Pastor Andrew mentioned, entitled Simply Different. Now, last week, Pastor Andrew helped us think about time and the challenge of misplaced priorities and the impoverishment of our imagination of the good life. So guess what? Andrew handed this off to me. No, seriously, this morning our text focuses us to think about money and wealth and the challenge all of us have of living a generous life lifestyle. You ready? So if you brought a text, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. Matthew, Mark, Luke, right? Chapter 19. So as we enter this text here in chapter 19, Luke brilliantly, with some of the finest Greek in the New Testament, and with literary style unmatched, invites us to a front row seat in a remarkable story of Jesus' encounter with a man named Zacchaeus. 
Now, as thoughtful readers and listeners, before we dive into the story, we need to observe carefully Luke's literary context and progression. Where Luke places this story is not incidental. It is integral to his broader purpose in his entire gospel. That is, Jesus' welcome inclusion, his messianic mission to all people. So if you have your Bible open, you look at Luke chapter 18, just a skosh above, and Luke gives us in verse 31 an important, explicit literary marker he doesn't want us to miss. That is, that Jesus and his disciples are on their way to Jerusalem, where Luke tips his hand as a writer, where a cross, a Roman cross, awaits Jesus. So now on the way to Jerusalem, Jesus comes to a very important place in human history and in biblical text, that is Jericho. Chapter 18 concludes with Jesus bringing physical and spiritual healing to a blind beggar. Now, Luke is employing in his order literary contrast. Here we have a blind beggar who, in this cultural context, is the lowest socioeconomic strata dweller. But then, not only does Luke focus on this blind beggar as the lower socioeconomic reality, but also the oppressed socioeconomic reality. But then as we enter chapter 19, you will notice the riveting contrast. Here, shown to us, is not the lowest socioeconomic strata, not the oppressed, but the very highest socioeconomic strata and the oppressor. Now notice, as we enter the text, Luke's writing, verses 1 through 4, if you're following along. He, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. Luke interjects a word that takes our breath away. Behold! Behold! There was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up in a sycamore tree to see him. For Jesus was about to pass that way. Yes, Zacchaeus was a wee low man, a wee low man was he. But rather, Luke's focus is not the smallness of Zacchaeus' stature, it is the depth of his pockets. Zacchaeus is a small man, but he has very deep pockets. You'll notice in verse 2, Luke tells us Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector and rich. Now, the Gospel of Luke, like all writings of antiquity, is encoded in linguistic structure and cultural coding. Here's an example where much is going on that we may miss in the 21st century. What is Luke really saying here to his original readers? For us to grasp it, we need to walk back in our sandals back to the first century. That Luke would say to his readers, that Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector and that Zacchaeus was rich 
would be like me saying to you in a very superfluous, awkward manner, like Oprah Winfrey, the celebrity, is rich. We don't, we don't introduce Oprah Winfrey as rich. Why? Everybody knows she's worth $2 billion plus, last count. So what is Luke doing? In the first century, everyone who read this text or heard it knew intuitively that tax collector meant rich, let alone a chief tax collector. There were no impoverished tax collectors in Palestine in the first century, I assure you. Why? Because it was the greatest gig on earth. What tax collectors did is they squeezed taxes out of people and then they met their quota to Rome and the difference was a massive margin that they kept. You talk about gravy. But it's not incidental that Luke tells us where Zacchaeus' tax booth and tax collectors under him were located. Jericho is an amazing place. It's been an amazing place throughout history. Let me give you an example. The great archaeologist, Madame Kenyon, in the Neolithic period, that's 8,000 BC, has uncovered the richness of the commercial enterprise of Jericho. Why? Because Jericho was located on the intersection of the ancient spice trade from Arabia all the way north and to the Mediterranean Sea. Luke is saying to us, as a brilliant writer and historian, Zacchaeus sat on a gold mine. And he is saying, without hyperbole, Zacchaeus was super rich, over the top. But he also tells us, if you notice, and the hints of this, that while Zacchaeus had deep pockets for sure, unimaginably deep, he gives us hints in the text that while Zacchaeus' hands may be full, his heart is hauntingly empty. And Luke tells us, by this, we know his behavior and actions in meeting Jesus are culturally unconventional. If we go back to the first century in Palestine, a person of extraordinary wealth, there was massive wealth inequality. A person of extraordinary wealth like Zacchaeus, if he wanted to see someone, the whole crowd would just make a way for him right away to see it. He'd get the front row seat. So what's going on here? Every morning, Zacchaeus woke up and looked through his sleepy eyes in the mirror. He saw a very polarizing social figure. For many devout Jews... A tax collector who oppressed the poor by his very nature of his work and was a vile traitor with Rome was, let's just say, not liked very much. If we put it in our context, the social stigma, at least for devout Jews to Zacchaeus, was like encountering a serial child molester. So avoiding any public humiliation, Zacchaeus, Luke is very explicit in the text, he makes an end run around the crowd to see Jesus. Not only that, he climbs a sycamore tree 
as we heard well in the song. But don't miss this. It's not only to see Jesus. It is to not be seen by the crowd. We know this because in Palestine and even modern-day Israel, the sycamore trees in the summer are filled with foliage. They're very dense. So this is a perfect place of concealment. And notice what Luke is doing in the story. While the crowd doesn't notice Zacchaeus, what surprises us when we come to verse 5 is who notices Zacchaeus. Not only does he have a furtive glance at Zacchaeus, he gazes at Zacchaeus. Notice the change of word. Jesus, in the midst of the hubbub of the crowd, focuses his complete attention on Zacchaeus. And Luke, brilliantly, wants us to rest and savor the delicious irony in front of us. Who really is seeking who? Yes, Zacchaeus goes against cultural convention to get a glimpse of Jesus. But the focus is not on Zacchaeus. The focus is on a radical Jewish rabbi who is really the one seeking out Zacchaeus and in the most shocking way. Cultural context, again, for a rabbi in the first century to acknowledge or even speak a word of greeting to a chief tax collector. It's like the head of the mafia. was a massive cultural stretch. It just didn't happen. But Jesus not only does that, his behavior is scandalous to others. But notice that Luke intentionally includes Jesus saying Zacchaeus' name. If you have studied the Gospel of Luke, you know this is rather rare. It was rare in chapter 18. It was just a blind beggar, no name. Zacchaeus is given a specific name. Jesus recognizes him. This piques our curiosity, doesn't it? You say, how did Jesus know his name? Oh, I can't answer that definitively, but I have a couple ideas. You want to hear? It may be that Jesus just modeled his omniscience, supernatural omniscience. Or it may be that on the way to Jerusalem, Jesus went through Jericho. He had encountered Zacchaeus some way. But I have a better hunch. My hunch is because the way Luke frames this, of Zacchaeus' over-the-top wealth. That Zacchaeus was a household name all the way through Palestine. See, you don't have to be a financial guru to know a couple names in our culture, right? Warren Buffett. Ever heard of him? Bill Gates. And it could go on. I think this is what's going on. Many Jews, of course, despised Zacchaeus, but Jews were not the only ones that lived in Jericho. Now remember how strategic Jericho is. It's a hub of commerce, Wall Street. 
Zacchaeus was a prominent and wealthy man. And in a culture of reciprocity and patronage, it would have benefited many to cultivate favor with Zacchaeus. Now, however Jesus knew Zacchaeus' name, you'll notice in the text he says, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down, for I must stay at your house today. There was only one person at that moment that wasn't shocked at those words, and that was Jesus. I mean, it was pin-drop silence. Notice Luke doesn't include anything the disciples say. They're hanging there with their mouths wide open. Zacchaeus is stunned. And the crowd is stunned at first, but then it erupts in hostility. And cutting scorn, that's the picture. (laughs) This guy has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And when you were a guest in someone's home, you welcomed them fully. It was inclusion. It wasn't just having a meal. You get the shocking nature of this? How scandalous this was? Now notice, if you have your text open, Luke does not tell us a single word about what took place between the end of verse 7 and the beginning of verse 8. Knowing Middle Eastern first century hospitality norms, it's not hard to surmise what took place in between those two verses. Clearly, and I'll mention this in a moment in the text, the disciples are escorted to the palatial home of Zacchaeus and Jerob. Zacchaeus must have thrown one big party in a hurry. (laughs) Other prominent guests besides Jesus and the disciples are at his home. Now think about this in our context. For Zacchaeus to host Jesus, this traveling celebrity whose name was growing across the country and fame, and for his disciples would have been like for you and me to host someone really important in your house. I mean, like a celebrity, politician, I guess, some of them. Someone very wealthy, an influential member of our city, a mayor. How would you feel? You'd be excited, like, whoa, right? You're getting everything ready? but you would bring your best hospitality forward. On that first century evening, and it is an evening now in Jericho, you can be assured even though you weren't there, and Luke does not give us explicit language, the dinner was very tasty. And there was a lot of it. In a Middle Eastern context, the choice wine flowed freely, and the laughter and the conversation in the house echoed through this palatial space. Luke does not tell us what the extended conversation was like between Jesus and his host. But we're not left in the dark. Because Jesus' consistent message, wherever he went, was about the kingdom of God he was bringing in and where the truly good life was found in him, the Messiah. This must have resonated with Zacchaeus' longing heart. And whatever Jesus said to Zacchaeus, around that scrumptious dinner table with all those guests, we do know that Zacchaeus' mind and heart were changed forever. And what Luke wants us to know is that based on what he includes in the text, he wants us to know that Zacchaeus' changed heart exhibited immediately a new relationship with wealth and money. Luke captures this defining moment 
in Zacchaeus' life, this watershed moment. In verse 8, and Zacchaeus stood, hold on to that, and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone, and you'd hear a chuckle. You hear the chuckle? Like, right. I restore it fourfold. Notice Luke's precise language. Zacchaeus stood. What this tells us is that in this cultural context, it is during the evening where all the dinner guests are reclining around a low table with palatial, beautiful cushions. That's how it was done. There's conversation, laughter going on, and when one of the richest men, if not the richest man in Jericho, stands up as the host, it's all pin drop silence. And then Zacchaeus breaks the silence. And what he says stuns them about his wealth. Notice the announcement reflects heartfelt repentance in two areas, both the lack of his generosity and also his contribution to economic injustice. It has often been observed, and I think rightly so, that true Christian faith, when Jesus really finds you, when you really encounter him, there are two conversions, one of the heart and the other of the pocketbook. It's not incidental. It is integral to Luke that Zacchaeus evidences both. As far as we know from the story, Jesus didn't tell Zacchaeus to be generous. Nor did Zacchaeus stop being a wealthy man. Nor did he give it all away, notice. But his encounter with Jesus profoundly changed his relationship with money and material wealth. Why? Because Zacchaeus now has a new master. And the master of his life is not money or wealth, it is Jesus. And when we get our master right, our money gets right. Zacchaeus doesn't have a money problem, he has a master problem. He doesn't ultimately have a money problem, he has a heart problem, just like you and me. And when Jesus sees his transformed heart, he declares in verse 9, do you get this? Today, this very moment, salvation has come to notice this house. Right? They're all in this house. Don't miss that. Since he also is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Now, hear me clearly. It wasn't Zachariah, or Zacharias, sorry, Zacchaeus' tangible generosity that saved him. It was Jesus that saved him. Let's not forget that Luke has already just told us Jesus is on the way to the cross to die for the sins of the world, including Zacchaeus, including yours and mine. But here in Luke 19, Zacchaeus evidences a new spiritual birth, just like Nicodemus in John 3. When you encounter Jesus, when you find Jesus, and when Jesus finds you, it radically changes your heart, your mind, and yes, your relationship with money and wealth. And don't notice that Zacchaeus, if you put your, is welcomed in 
to the family of God. In a Jewish context, the rabbis wrote about this in Midrash and commentary. A tax collector was way beyond the grace of God. It was impossible to be saved. And Jesus is saying there's nobody outside. No past so strong, so deep. Nobody who's outside my arms of redemption. Wow. Zacchaeus is welcomed into the family of God as he repents of his sin and follows Christ. We must not miss that. Luke's story reminds us that whether we have a little or a lot or in between, behind our money problem is a heart problem. It is not that material wealth and money are bad in themselves. Actually, wealth creation is a vital part of our cultural mandate recorded in Genesis chapter 1 to be fruitful. That is productivity and wealth. But when it comes to money and material wealth, it's really not about how much you and I have. It's about how much of what we have has us. And Zacchaeus was in deep chains of enslavement. The Bible repeatedly warns us of the soul-suffocating peril of greed, does it not? It's not how much we have again. All of us, whatever amount we have or don't have can get caught in greed's grip. Greed is not attached to one socioeconomic level. It's attached to a fallen heart. And let's face it, money can do great things and wealth can do great things, but it's also very seductive and very deceptive. I say, what do you mean? Well, there are several ways. One, we can buy into an identity seduction or identity deception that somehow our self-worth is equated with our net worth rather than anchoring our worth to Jesus Christ and what he's done for us and our relationship with him. That our identity is in Jesus. Another deception that's common is the security deception. That's where we equate material wealth with personal security rather than finding our security in Jesus. One increasingly common in our day is the happiness deception. Somehow we are told that the more money or material wealth and stuff we have, the more happy we will be rather than finding our true happiness in Jesus Christ. There's growing data. Have you followed it? From empirical researchers on human happiness. This is fascinating. These are not faith-driven at all. They're social researchers across the globe. One of the interesting recently published ones is the 2017 World Happiness Scale. It's a fascinating read. It's not based on faith at all. Covers the globe. Chapter 7 of the report is particularly written to most of us. It's called Restoring American Happiness. And here's what the researchers say. The data teaches. Not faith, not a preacher, sociologist and economist. America's crisis is in short a social crisis, or we may add as Christians, a spiritual crisis, not an economic crisis. In sum, the United States offers a vivid portrait of a country that is looking for happiness in all the wrong places. This is not a preacher talking. In spite of all the evidence, there is something, friends, so alluring about material wealth and money. It's one of those things that captures our hearts so easy. We often tell ourselves, if we just had more, we'd be happy, right? If I just get the right job or the college or the right car or dream vacation or this fun experience or a secure retirement, then I'll feel happy. But we are reminded 
through the story of Zacchaeus, when he encounters Jesus, the happiness that had eluded his longing heart for so long was finally realized. I love Bono's great song in U2, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. The words are prophetic to our culture. Zacchaeus would have said, amen, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And none of us ever will till we find Jesus, or better yet, he finds us. Zacchaeus was a small man, y'all. But his transformed life speaks to us of a big truth. And that is if you get your master right, then you will get your money right. For money and wealth are great servants to be used for great good, but they are also cruel masters. Jesus invites you and me to experience the truly good life. Jesus is more concerned about your happiness, your true happiness, than you are. And that happiness, he says, is found in an intimate apprenticeship with himself. In Matthew 11, 20-30, he invites us into this happy life, this true life we were designed to live. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus uses the word rest to capture the life we long to live, the life we were designed to live. It is found in Jesus, in knowing him intimately and learning from him. When we are yoked to Jesus, we learn how he teaches us how to live in all dimensions of human reality that he created. Among other things, Jesus was a brilliant economist. When we apprentice our lives to Jesus, we learn the goodness of wealth creation. We learn the proper relationship we are to have with money and material wealth. We learn how to generously steward it for the glory of God and the good of others. An outstanding book is The Good of Affluence. It's entitled Seeking God in a Culture of Wealth, John Schneider. It's an outstanding book. And he says these words about the story of Zacchaeus. Because Schneider understands what this text says. In this story, it is not that a man is saved from the economics of the world, but the world is redeemed in and through the salvation and new economics of the man. Hear what Schneider is saying. It is not that as followers of Jesus, once we come to Christ, we're somehow extricated from the economic world we live in. But rather, we now participate in this economic world and we see it through a value-driven, clarifying lens. The clarifying lens I would like to call this morning the Jesus economy. At Christ Community, we believe our work really matters. If you've been around here long, you know we talk a lot about that from Scripture. And that our work is not only a way we primarily worship God, a primary way we're spiritually formed, a primary way we serve and love our neighbor in a global economy. So let me just suggest three characteristics, there are more, but three foundational characteristics of the Jesus economy that ought to guide us who are apprentices of Jesus. First, the Jesus economy takes injustice seriously. When he encounters Jesus and receives the salvation Jesus offers him as a free gift of his grace, Zacchaeus immediately, immediately repents of defrauding the poor. Zacchaeus is not only repenting of his personal actions, clearly that's explicit, but implicit is the broader unjust taxation system of Rome he was a part of. 
Proverbs 11 verse 1 could not be more explicit about personal responsibility and institutional or societal responsibility. Proverbs 11 1 says this, dishonest scales are detestable to the Lord, but an accurate weight is his delight. Economic injustice, whatever the form, is detestable to God. And this text reaches out across time and asks us the question, is it detestable to us? It was the late Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. who spoke so boldly and clearly to the church of his time, not only about the evil of racism, but the evil of economic injustice and how it was so often perpetuated in churches who had a Sunday-to-Monday gap that the gospel spoke into the soul but not all of life. And here's what he says from his brilliant letters from a Birmingham jail. In the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice, I have heard so many ministers or pastors say, those are social issues with which the gospel has no real concern. And I've watched so many churches commit themselves to completely otherworldly religion, which made a strange distinction between body and soul and the sacred and secular. Dr. King understood that the gospel profoundly speaks with grace and truth into every nook and cranny of human life, including our economic life. Our latest book, The Economics of Neighborly Love, if you've not read it, I encourage you to do that, not in a self-promoting way. But we unpack several themes that are important biblically. The goodness of work, of wealth creation, the importance of promoting economic opportunity for everyone, as well as confronting economic justice and so forth. So the first characteristic of the Jesus economy is it takes seriously economic injustice. But secondly, notice it also manages resources wisely. The Jesus economy sees all money and material wealth as something we are called to steward well. The Bible clearly affirms private ownership, but the Jesus economy places ultimate ownership in God's hands. As apprentices of Jesus, we are called to steward well what God ultimately owns. And if you notice where Luke goes, it is not incidental that following Zacchaeus' story, Luke includes a parable about wealth stewardship. Jesus speaks a ton about money and wealth. And this makes sense, because each morning, we wake up to an economic world. Christ community, we speak a lot about financial stewardship. And hear me carefully, it is not because I or any of us want something from you, but because of what we want for you, which is God's best. Managing your financial and material resources well is an essential, vital part of being a true disciple of Jesus. Because when you encounter Jesus and are truly converted, your pocketbook is too. They go together, as this text clearly teaches. We hear a lot about the importance of physical fitness. First of the year, right? Gyms are full. It's a good thing. What about financial fitness? How financially fit are you? Financial fitness is seldom tied to how much or how little we make, but rather how well we manage what we make. Many people in our country and in the church are not financially fit because of overextended lifestyles driven by consumption or 
debt. And like physical fitness, financial fitness requires daily discipline. Popular financial guru Dave Ramsey has said this, and I'm always leery of statistics. Someone told me after the first service, it's strong in terms of his research, but if it's exactly right or not, I don't know, but it's really scary. His research says that 78% of people in America live paycheck to paycheck. That's not good news for the individual, marriages, and in society. But there is good news. The good news is there are many tools today that help you manage God's money well. Regardless of your age, if you're younger, now is the time. Or your income. Here at the Leva campus, we've just started the Financial Peace University, which I encourage you to consider. I know I talked to the staff this morning, and it's going to already close, but you can email them and sneak in, okay? It's a great opportunity to learn how to manage it, whether you're young, old, have a lot, or have a little. So may I also encourage you to be economically transparent with a trusted Christian friend or a Christian advisor who will have eyes on your financial world. We know what our idols are because most of our idols we don't want anyone to see. So is there a couple trusted people who know exactly your financial world to keep you accountable? The Jesus economy takes economic injustice seriously. Secondly, it manages economic resources wisely, but thirdly, it embraces joyful generosity. As image bearers of generous God, we are created to be generous. You and I were created with generosity in mind. From a biblical standpoint, from creation on, the most natural thing is to be generous. The most unnatural thing is to be selfish. But sin entered the world and has distorted that. But we have seen in the story of Zacchaeus, the gospel restores a new passion for generosity. So let me say this. As a congregation, I am so encouraged over the years, and I increasingly see it across our campuses, how we are growing in generosity. This may surprise you, but let me simply say thank you. I really mean that. One of the greatest joys as I travel is that what a generous congregation we have. Because of your God-honoring generosity, giving to Jesus' bride as a priority of the church, we met our budget this year. Together, we are having an amazing impact in our city through our five campuses like never before across the nation with Made to Flourish and reaching global partners from Africa, China to Iran. But I also believe that God is prompting all of us to grow in generosity. So wherever you are, what are some steps you can take this year to grow in that area? Let me ask you, what may be holding you back from being more generous? Maybe it's paralyzing fear of not having enough. Maybe you have an overextended lifestyle. Maybe you're not managing the resources you have or you're having poor investment strategies. Maybe growing in generosity means working more diligently. Maybe on the other side, it means working less because you're working for the wrong reasons. That work has become your idol. So as apprentices of Jesus, we are called to embrace the Jesus economy. It's one that takes economic injustice seriously, one that manages resources wisely, one that embraces joyful generosity. We are reminded in this text through the brilliant writer Luke that Jesus not only transforms the human heart, he inevitably transforms the human pocketbook. 
Let's bow for a time of prayerful reflection. Heavenly Father, we need you in this matter. We confess, all of us, that our hearts are often, my heart is often seduced to worship the idol of money and material wealth. So individually, Lord, before our audience of one, we repent of that idolatry. We place you individually and as a local church. We place you as Lord, that you are our supreme love. So empower us to order our loves rightly, to love you with all our hearts, minds, souls, and bodies, and our neighbors as ourselves. Heavenly Father, help us to take more seriously the economic injustice in our city and our world. May we be more aware of actions on our part and the broader systemic barriers that are preventing equal economic opportunity for our fellow image bearers. Lord Jesus, help us to wisely come alongside those oppressed and those who faced inadequate economic resources. And in our workplaces, help us to promote justice, to promote goodness and the flourishing of all. Lord Jesus, we need you.